Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to the Nuasis podcast. You are listening to The Divine Reality, God, Islam, and the Mirage of Atheism, a class organized by the Texas Muslim Student Association and IERA and taught by Sheikh Fahad Taslim. This course aims to present a thorough understanding of atheism's philosophical roots and provide key arguments from an Islamic paradigm. After listening, we hope you come to understand the powerful case for the truth of Islam based upon rationality and spirituality, and we hope you become equipped with not only a guide to fortify your own convictions, but also a toolkit to proactively invite others to the beautiful Islamic way of life. If you want to buy the book Divine Reality, or if you want to invite an instructor to your own community to teach the course, please visit iera.org. And if you want to help us continue our efforts in bringing more content to you or the Muslim students of UT Austin and the greater Austin community, please visit nuasismas.com. All right, so Rahmatullah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wassalatu wassalam. Ala Rasulil Kareem Amabad. All right. Who's ready to get started? I am. Wow. That's... All right, let me try it again. Who's ready to get started? Oh, yes. Okay, there we go. All right, so we've shifted to this room, just for your information's sake, because I really wasn't expecting this many people, to be honest, after the break and stuff that we had. But alhamdulillah, it's, it's, all, it's all good. No, it's not me. I was just... <laughs> it was just the break and then all of these other things. But anyways, khair. It's all good. Um, so listen, last time we did a bonus session. You guys remember that? Are those guys over here? Okay. So for this class, I'm going to skip the bonus session. Reason being is I'm going to try to cram in two of the original sessions into the time that we have because um, we're kind of falling a bit behind. And literally, if you look at the class, the one we do over like one day, we have maybe like 20 sessions. And we'll, only be, we'll only be able to cover like six or seven. So maybe we'll stretch it into next semester. Maybe not. We'll see how you guys react. Okay? All right. So the very first topic that we're going to be looking at is not a direct argument for the existence of God, okay? In fact, if you were here last time, you remember that one of the objectives when we're speaking about the existence of God or we're having a conversation with someone or we're making da'wah to someone, um, one of the objectives is not necessarily to prove or have a rational, hardcore argument for the existence of God, but rather it's to uncloud the fitrah. How many of you guys remember that, right? Okay. So this particular section, we're not going to be looking at straight arguments, but what we're going to be looking at is what are the implications of a worldview that's based upon atheism. Okay? In other words, what does that imply for you in terms of when you look at it from an existential point of view, in terms of your existence, you as a human being? So it's a very personal um, kind of questioning of what, the view of atheism or a worldview that's based upon atheism, what are the implications of that? Okay? So, before I get into the section, what do you think are the implications? If you were to have a worldview that's based on atheism, and by the way, what I mean here, I guess I should kind of qualify that. What we're talking about are atheists that believe in philosophical naturalism. So, who remembers that from last time? Okay. What is philosophical naturalism? We said it, it consists of three things. What was what was one of them? Um, that everything is based on just the physical world. There's no unseen. Right. So everything is based on physical processes. There's nothing that's non-physical. Everything is based on physical processes, right? Okay. And these ra- these processes are random. They're blind. 
They're non-intentional and non-rational. Okay? All right, what else? Second quality of what's something, what's part of philosophical naturalism. Nobody else. Yeah? It rejects all supernatural claims. Right, it rejects all supernatural claims. Now, what we mean by supernatural is that you have the natural world, hence the term naturalism, right? And any sort of concept that's outside of the natural world that's, that's completely rejected. Okay, so obviously the concept of God, but also the concept of an afterlife. Okay, because that is a supernatural claim. Okay, there's one more. Are you just looking at your notes? All right, go for it. <laughs> Yes, there's nothing outside of our universe, and even if there is, it has no impact on what goes on inside the universe. Okay, so this is what we know. This is what is known as philosophical naturalism. Now, most atheists are philosophical naturalists, but not all. Okay, so I want to make that very clear. And so, what we're talking about in this section are what are the implications of someone that holds to philosophical naturalism. In other words, that their worldview is that everything happens via physical processes. You cannot say anything outside of the physical world, okay? That there is no supernatural, there's no afterlife. In other words, when you die, you die, that's it, right? And like we said, and if, even if there is something outside of the natural world, it doesn't have any bearing on what goes on. So what do you think would be some of the existential implications? Your existence, you as a human being, what does that mean for you? If you woke up tomorrow, boom, you're an atheist. Right? Inshallah, may Allah protect us all of us from that. All right? Um, what does that imply? Yeah? You don't have a soul. Okay, you don't have a soul. Why is that important? Why, why? So what? There's nothing supernatural about your body. So there's nothing supernatural. So it's all just physical yeah. causes. Okay, yeah? No morality. Ooh, no morality. Are you trying to say the atheists aren't moral? <laughs> Any atheists here today? I'm so curious. Um, so, how would you? Why would you say that there that there's no morality? What defines good and bad? I guess just us. Okay, so morality is basically subjective. Yeah. Right. Like I can say whatever I want to say. Right. Okay. All right. We'll talk more about that in the objective morality section. Yeah. There's no point of this world. Okay, good. So then suicide doesn't seem like such a bad option, right? In fact, there was a... Yeah. <laughs> there was a... You guys know what Freakonomics is? It's a book and it's a podcast. So they had an episode on the, the rationality of suicide. You've got you to check it out. I don't know what episode it is, like 59 or something like that. But it's very interesting because they take that very point from this very worldview and basically say that, you know, if you think about it, suicide is actually a very rational choice. Um, but anyhow, what else? Yeah. I guess sort of extending on, on the last part is yeah. there's, there's no inherent meaning to life. So okay. the mean, you can make whatever meaning of life that you want. To make. Okay, why is, it, why is that a problem? Like, like okay, for example, in, in a, like having religion, your, your purpose in life is to serve God, right? Yeah. Since there's no inherent meaning in okay. an atheist worldview, you yeah. can make whatever meaning you want. Okay. You can give so yourself any purpose. You can give yourself any purpose. Okay. All right. Anyone else? Yeah. There's no friend that ever gave me a meaning. Good. Good girls. Okay. I see. So there's no framework, like moral framework, you mean? Yeah. Okay. Kind of like the the moral question earlier. Yeah. Can you 
have like full control over your life and how you make your living. Okay, so. Like there's no higher. So one of the things I want you guys to think about, um, when you say like full control, right? Where does that control come from? Yourself. Yourself. Okay. But if everything is based on random, blind, non-rational, non-intentional, physical causes, do you really have free will, or are they just, you know, neurons that are going off in your head, <coughs> right? That are random because they came from randomness. They're not rational. Um, and they're blind, and there's no intention. So the concept of free, the question of free will then starts getting thrown into the air, right? Like, do you really have free will under this worldview? Right? Think about it. Yeah. Well, you want to answer that? or? Kind of. Okay. I mean, I've heard of the idea of compatibilism. Right? Okay, which is? Which is the idea that, that the determinism, the idea that every, like, everything is decided by, like, the neurons and, like, sure. the sure. brain is also compatible with, with free will. Okay. How? I mean, I, I, one of the, I, I don't fully understand this, but I guess one of the explanations is how you, how exactly you define free will. So. Okay. But defining free will means you have a free will. You have choices, right? Like if I want to place this, this clicker on the table, I can do that, right? Or is it predetermined? Uh, right. I, I, Just in a very simple, simple way. If you define free will as freedom from, say, constraint, right? That okay. in, in that way, it would be compatible with determinism, I guess. Yeah, okay. I think there's some philosophical uh, loopholes that you could be kind of jumping through. But okay, because we're going back to definition. All right. What else? That's it. All right. Let's start off by basically saying that. If this worldview is taken to its logical conclusion, it's an existential disaster. For you as a human being, if this is what you're kind of living upon, it's, you're going to go nuts, right? I'm just existentially, if you think about questions related to your existence, it's very problematic, okay? Um, so the worldview, just again, philosophical naturalists, they believe everything happens via physical processes, all right? Uh, it means that there's nothing outside this universe, and even if there is, it has no bearing, it has no effect on the universe itself. Okay. Now what that implies though, that implies that when it comes to this person's life, that they can't have any sort of hope. And we're talking about ultimate hope right now. Okay. Um, they cannot place value on things, so there's no ultimate value. There's no ultimate purpose. And when it comes to happiness, there's no ultimate happiness as well. Now notice in all four of those, I use the word ultimate, and there's a reason for that, okay, which we'll get into. Um, but the I, I want you guys to keep in mind, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That um, for whoever turns away from my remembrance, indeed he will have a ma'isha, which is dunka. It's like a depressed life. Now the word dunk, even like when you hear the sound, it sounds very deep and dead, like you just dropped this big, you know, depressed like rock, right? Dunk. Yeah. So you have even from, from the oral sound of it, it's like it's just the, the your life is gonna be very constrained, right? Because those existential questions are gonna keep on nagging a person, right? Okay. Alright, so let's start off with ultimate hope. Um hope. So 
How do we define hope before you guys read it off the slide? <laughs> oh, wait, I was writing it down. What's hope? You guys hope for anything? What do you hope for, Austin? To graduate. To graduate. All right. Any, anyone else? <clears throat> hope for anything else? What did you guys have to <laughs> did you say second? What was? What did you say? <laughs> All right. I was hoping he wouldn't say what he just said. <laughs> Which was? Oh, wife. Okay. Yes, that's that's. <laughs> All right. All right. So, what, what do you mean by hope? What is hope? Have a desire for something. Okay. So have a desire for something. When? Happened in the past. In the future. In the future, right? So it's to to, to hope. It, it's to it's it's a desire for something to happen. Right or an expectation for something to happen in the future, right? It's a, the feeling, expectation, or desire of something to happen. Okay. Now let's take let's take the worldview of philosophical naturalism or atheism, but they're not not all atheists are philosophical naturalists, and look at look at that under the rubric of hope. And what we're talking about here is not hope in the sense that I hope I get a job or I hope I get married, you know, or I hope that you know it's sunny tomorrow. But we're talking about ultimate hope, meaning. What happens after you die? Okay? Because someone could argue, someone could say, look, I can have hope. There's nothing stopping me with a worldview based on philosophical naturalism. Or as an atheist, there's nothing preventing me from having hope, right? Because I can hope for a better job. That's just an internal state that I have, right? But what we're talking about right now is ultimate hope, meaning that when you die, if your worldview is based on the idea that there's nothing after, there's no supernatural, there's nothing that happens after you die. So therefore, where's the hope? And I want you to think about this in a, in, in a couple of different contexts. First, uh, when we were, so we had flown out to the UK to go through this whole atheism training stuff, okay? And, um, and so one of the guys there, I remember he said like, I, I asked an atheist once, I said, how do you offer condolences to someone? Like you go to a funeral and someone's child just died, right? So what do you tell this person? I'll be thinking of you. No, I mean, what, no, I'll be thinking of you. <laughs> I mean, but seriously, what, what kind of condolences would you offer? Like under this, this worldview of atheism or philosophical naturalism, what, how do you console this person? You tell them like, hey, you know, um, it's really too bad. Your son just died. He was in one physical state of atoms, and now he's in another physical state of atoms, and man, that must suck. Like, I want you to think about it, right? Like, what are you going to tell this person, right? You can't. You can't really tell them anything, at least anything to, like, kind of satisfy that internal, you know, that need for having hope, right? Okay. So, what if someone says, what if someone had, like, a life of suffering? All right, now I want you to think of like the worst case scenario. So what would the worst case scenario be? Someone lived this life and it just sucked. What do you think? What's that? Okay, you bad it's on. All right, maybe maybe a more contemporary example. Something that's going on. Yeah. Concentration camp. Concentration camp. Okay. So a person that was in a concentration camp, they lived there, let's say, their whole life. Um, they were beaten. They were tortured. And after that, where's the hope? If this is your worldview, then where's the hope when you need hope? Do you get what I'm saying? So remember, this is not a straight argument. But this is basically taking them as a human being and kind of understanding, like, you have this internal need. So when it counts, where is it? Like, what do you do with it, right? 
Now, there's two options. Either you change your worldview or you accept that, that it's a flawed worldview, basically. Does that make sense? Right? Because at that moment, you need hope. And where is it when you need it? Okay? But let's say someone comes now and says, look, um, man, my life's been a party. I've enjoyed life. So why do I need to hope for anything after death? What do you think? YOLO. YOLO, exactly. You only live once. So now what? Come on, guys. This is, you guys are a college, in college. You're supposed to be thinking, rational. Yeah. I don't know, man. Some of these guys that, uh, some of these crap boys. <laughs> Daddy's paying for everything, man. So they have a pretty good life. Yeah, sister. It's going to come to an end. So you have this life of joy, and then now it's going to come to an end, and there's going to be nothing. Very good. Yeah. So it comes to an end, right? So there's no hope for it to continue. So, and when you're at the end, you would want it to continue. If you really had a life of joy, great. That's good for you. But when you need hope, where is the hope? Under a worldview that basically says physical processes only, you're just moving from one physical state to another physical state, right? And I'm repeating this over and over again because I want this. I want. I want. I want to hammer this home because this is exactly what that worldview is. Okay? There's nothing that happens after death. There's no afterlife, and so therefore, where is the hope when you need hope? Okay. Now, what about for us in the Islamic framework? Do we have hope? Is hope part of our religion, part of our deen? Okay. You could say that this religion is full of hope, right? I mean, when you need it, you have it, right? I remember um, uh, when my father-in-law passed away. And so my father-in-law, he was, uh, he was a, a, I would say, a very pious person from what we could tell, right? And he passed away on, uh, on a Friday. He had... Uh, he had made wudu in the morning, or showered, right, ghusl, and he was on his way to Jummah when he passed away. So if you guys know from our tradition, you know, that is, uh, that is one of the signs of a good end, that you die on the day of Friday, that you die in a state of purity, <coughs> right? Um, and there's some other indications as well. But anyhow, um, and I, I remember that my wife, she had told me uh, that, you know, had it not been for Islam, that I would have totally broken down. Right? Had it not been for the fact that I knew that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there, go ahead. And that oh, so coming in or staying? Doing a count, okay. So she said, had had I not had Islam at that moment, when when I needed it the most, that I could hope that I would eventually see my, my father, right? And that perhaps that he would be entering paradise, right? And so on and so forth. So the point is you have hope when you need hope. Okay, and that's a tool that's available. That's that's basically you you have when you have a belief in God, and specifically within the Islamic framework. In fact, you know they say that our religion is based on kind of um, like hope in Allah's mercy and fear of Allah's wrath, because that's what keeps a individual balanced at the end, right? So Ibn Al Qayyim gives uh, an example that the believer is like a dove, right? So the head of the dove is basically the love of Allah, and he has two wings by which he flies. One is the hope of hope in Allah's mercy. And fear of Allah's wrath, and that keeps the, the keeps the bird afloat, right? Because too much hope means what? Means you have the, you know, those those aunties you see at the masjid, that you know they're just like, Beta, don't worry, Allah's Rahim, 
I do what I want, right? <laughs> and at the same time, there's fear of Allah's wrath, right? So that it's just not like, man, this life sucks. Allah will never forgive me. It's just, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to go out and party, right? That when you have that balance, you have that balance in your shaksiya, in your personality, yeah? Okay? So you have hope when you need hope the most. And obviously you need hope the most when? When you're just about to die. In fact, one of the etiquettes when someone dies is that you're supposed to go to them and remind them of the mercy of Allah, right? And just letting you guys know, so don't show up at someone's deathbed and be like, man, you were bad. It sucks to be you, man. You're going to hell, right? No, the etiquette is you start no matter how bad that person was. I don't care if this person was a drunkard, you know, that he was, you know, but if he has iman, if he says he's Muslim and this person, you know, he or she, wherever they are, you come to them at that moment and you start imbuing them with the hope of Allah. Like, listen, you're returning to a Lord who is merciful. One that forgave like murderers. One forgave like all sorts of... I mean, think about it, right? Like, for instance, the day of Arafah. Okay? Amazing. Because on the day of Arafah, when you go for Hajj, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gathers the angels and He says, look at my servants that have come from afar. Yeah? They've come here dusty, disheveled, right? Broken. And if you think about it, who's there? I mean, you have people there that are... That, that were drinking. You had tyrants from certain countries that were punishing people. You had homosexuals. You had all the entire, the worst of humanity, right? That, that is there with their sins. And they're there with their sins in what? In hoping that Allah will forgive them. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gathers the angels and says, look at my people that have come disheveled, dusty in the state that they're in and know that today I've forgiven all of them. Allah right? So where's the hope when you need hope when it comes to the Islamic framework? It's there. Right? But where is the hope when you need hope from a worldview that's based upon philosophical naturalism? Right? So that's what we're talking about in this section. All right. So no ultimate hope. But then there's no ultimate hope for justice either. Right? So someone mentioned like morality. Okay? Under this worldview, there is no ultimate justice. Right? Notice I didn't say justice. I said no ultimate justice. Okay? In this worldview, justice becomes an unachievable goal. All right, so now, obviously, one of the, the examples we have up there is I want you guys to think of the, the, the Jewish lady that's just about to be thrown into a gas chamber, or actually, to put it a little more hyperbole, that this Jewish lady's child is about to be thrown into a gas chamber during Nazi Germany, right? So where's the hope for justice when it comes to her in that moment? When it comes to Hitler, for instance, like I remember um, Sheikh Kamal Maki mentioned, he said that there was a, he went to one of his professors and she said, I started thinking about it and I said, so Hitler just died? Like after killing millions and millions of people, he just, that's it? Like where's the, where, where, where's the retribution, where's the justice? Yeah? Um, but then someone argued against that. They said, you know, Hitler actually had a really difficult life and he was very depressed. No, I'm serious. <laughs> this is an argument that was presented. They're like, no, Hitler was very depressed. And that depression was was What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, debilitating, right? Basically, he basically broke down, and so he was, in a way, he got what he what 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 he had put forth, right? So justice has been served. How do you answer? Was it? I don't know. That's why I'm asking you guys. <laughs> Is depression a good counter argument for millions of lives? Like, like, oh, I'm depressed. So well, if they argue that, yeah, it is. It. If they argue, they say, yeah, well, it is. Are you just stretching, huh? Anyone else? How do you... Yeah. Well, like, the life of the 
Exactly. Like, okay, justice was served to Hitler, but what about the Jewish lady herself and her child that just got thrown in the gas chamber? Where is the justice for her? Right? Do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. Why would she, under your worldview or my worldview? Under an Islamic worldview, like under a, the, a theist worldview or under a Christian worldview. Why would she go to hell? Or say they're, they're a non-believer, but they've had a miserable, miserable life. Okay. Wouldn't they go to hell? Well, what do you guys think? Is that true? No, mm, interesting question. So do we believe that like all non-believers go to hell? No. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Who said that? Yeah. Oh, Asin. Okay. Why? Well, because the... What's judged is what's in the heart, right? Yeah. And so the external doesn't, like, we can't say based on the external. Like okay. There are Jewish people that believe in Tawheed, right? There's okay. monotheistic Jews and Christians that do their very, very best, and then on the day of judgment, Allah SWT is going to accept their Tawheed after. Okay. Place, all right, right, all right. Any other conflicting opinions? <laughs> Everyone agree with Asin? Don't, don't always agree with him, by the way. Everyone Just because he's saying it doesn't mean it's true. <laughs> yeah. Is that? I'm just wondering if that actually answers the question because like, I've had that posed to me as well. Like, If okay. there's a person that you know doesn't believe in the concept of Tawheed yeah. but like lives a good, highest life otherwise, sure. Sure. treats everybody around them like really well, right? but at the end of the day, they're not Muslim in the barest sense of the word. Sure. Doesn't that mean that... And that's it? They go to hell? Yeah. Well, that's, what, that's what my question is, right? <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what I'm asking. Yeah. It depends on if they like heard the message of Islam. Like, the let's say they heard it. Let's denied, say you went up to them, you told them everything. Can you say like John? I told you everything. You're screwed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, is, 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 can you say that? I can't. I don't right. Know okay. His heart. Okay. But if in his heart he doesn't believe it, okay. Then yeah. All right. All right. Anybody else? Yeah. That's a good way to start. Okay. But isn't there that one story? Like, doesn't it say that for some people there's that one good deed that's going to lead you to Jannah? Like, there was that one story of the woman who was a prostitute her whole life. Okay. And she lived a life full of sin. And then someone came across her and she gave him a smile. And that smile made that person stay. And okay. that was that one good deed that sent her to Jannah. So even though she lived this life full of sin, she was still sent to Jannah. So the, so the hadith doesn't mention what she was upon, though. Because you could be Muslim and still be a prostitute, right? Yeah. Right? Okay. <laughs> just want to make sure that's clear. All right. Right? So we don't really know. I mean, maybe she was Muslim, but she was just really bad. So. Or maybe she wasn't. Or maybe she wasn't. Right? We just don't know. We don't have that information. Yeah. I mean, it's often like, uh, well, when it comes to judgment, it's like a contextual type of thing, case sure. by case. Sure. So um, I would say that uh, it depends on, like, how the person views or, like, what they understand, what knowledge they already have. Okay. And, yeah. It's okay. So I won't push this any further. Uh, <laughs> so basically, you know, when you look, when you go through the Quran and you read all of the ayat related to, like, the kuffar and the hellfire and so on and so forth, what we need to understand is that the most a person can say is that they are under the threat of the punishment of Allah. Okay? You cannot go to a person and say, John, because you are not a Muslim, you are going to hell, right? Because you don't know that. Because there are a number of variables that you have no knowledge of whatsoever, right? 
the most you can say is like, look, you're under the threat of the punishment of Allah. And this is what Allah says about people that have covered up the truth. Yeah? Um, secondly, someone may ask then, but what about people that are not Muslim that, let's say, never heard about Islam? Okay? There's a very interesting hadith. Uh, Ibn Taymiyyah mentions this hadith. Um, and it is sahih, by the way. Where the Prophet mentions that on the Day of Judgment, there will be three types or four types of people that will be resurrected. Amongst them will be people who came in between Prophets. And some of the ulama have, uh, have, have interpreted that to mean people that never got the message. Right? So if you came in between Prophets, it means you never got the message. So that first category of people that <laughs> never got the message, or you say in between Prophets. Second group of people, people that could not hear. So they did not have the they did not have the, the oral or the, the, the auditory function to be able to get the message. And the third type of people are people that have a mental deficiency. Because they didn't have the mental faculty to understand. Those three people will be brought out on the day of judgment. And Allah subhanahu and they'll get to see it all. So it'll be in a much better position than all of us, right? So for us it's like we haven't seen the day of judgment, but they see it all, right? The mountains exploding, the child coming out with his hair turning grey, all of that. Okay? Now when they see all of that, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will address them directly and say, I will send you a messenger. If you follow this messenger, you will enter paradise. And if you deny the messenger, you will enter the hellfire. A messenger sent to them, he says, follow me, he walks into fire. Okay. Now, the people that follow him will find that the fire doesn't burn them. And the people that follow him will enter paradise. And the people that don't, won't. Right. So even if someone, let's say, like, oh, I haven't heard the message of Islam, whatever it might be, what about those people? That's, that's still, because at the end of the day, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is just. And He's not going to punish for that which a person did not have the ability to know, right? Or didn't know. Make sense? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned four. You said maybe you mentioned four. Is the fourth hadith? Or those are hadith? Or? Uh, no, I, I'm not sure. I think there might have only been three. Right. But I'll, like, I'll check up on it. like the father of like, uh, but th see, those people, I think the scholars kind of mentioned that they're already upon the fitrah anyway. Yeah. Like so if you're Ahlul Fitra, yeah, so then yeah. So I don't know. If, I don't. I'm not. I don't think they're part of that that group. Yeah. yeah. All right. So no ultimate justice. Yeah. So what about like a child that like passes away young? So there's actually a, a slight difference of opinion, right? Whether actually the fourth group was the child. I think. Right. Um, wait, wait. But then there's like the story of. Yes, exactly. But okay, so the I want to say that the stronger opinion, right, is basically that children, because they're born upon the fitra, that they they're not exactly judged, okay, because they're already born upon tawhid, because that's a core belief that we talked about last time, right? Every child is born upon the fitra, right? So therefore, every child is born in the state of Islam, in a sense, you know. Um, so therefore, if they die, then there's no concept of like them going to hell at all. Okay. Now the question comes up: What about the children of the disbelievers? But it's the same thing, right? Because they're born upon the fitra. It's later on when they grow up that then they're they're either made into you know Jews, Christians, etc. Yeah. So even when they grow up, before they hit puberty, puberty. Before they hit puberty, basically, that's the idea. So, Actually, you know what? I'm going to take that back. Um, some scholars have said that it might be that they, they, the, the, your your having to obey the Sharia happens when you're baligh, right? Mm -hmm. But there is a certain age which they call the age of discernment, when when a child is mumayyiz, okay? We can just you can distinguish between things. So whether that child at that point where he can you know distinguish between good and wrong, right and wrong, meaning he's not 
Allah's not going to hold him accountable, but he still knows, like, you know, you, you know, you shouldn't hit people or whatever it is, right? So under that condition, maybe the child will be held accountable. Allahu Akbar at the end. <coughs> so is that clear? <coughs> right? The concept, the idea of what happens to a non-Muslim and so on and so forth, right? So can we say X person is going to hell? No. Okay, so please don't say that. <laughs> All right. All right. So coming back to our thing, there's no ultimate justice in under this worldview. Okay? And so when you think about it, Hitler... What a, and so what, they're, what are they exactly saying at the end? What they're saying is that basically it doesn't matter if you lived a very pious life, you helped like you know, a million people out of like poverty, whatever it might be, and you have another person that's extremely corrupt, at the end they're equalized. Right? They're under the, because they just, they just move from one physical state to another physical state. One collection of atoms to another collection of atoms. Hold on. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَفَنَجَعَلُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ كَالْمُجْرِمِينَ that are you going to equate, make equal, someone who submitted to Allah, the Muslims, right? Those people who submitted to Allah, and criminals, people that disobeyed Allah. Malakum, takumun. Like, what's wrong with you? How do you judge? In other words, that if you're really concerned about justice, under this worldview, there's no concept of ultimate justice. You, it's not achievable, right? Because in this dunya, you'll never achieve justice, uh, meaning in an ultimate fashion. Yeah? Okay, you had a question? Yeah, so... I was just thinking about Abu Lahab, right? Yeah. And when the Prophet Sallallahu was born, he freed two slaves. And then it's narrated that because of that act, every every Monday he's going to be given two drops of water in the hellfire, right? Because okay. of that act. Right. And I was just wondering, like, that is just as, like, he's getting a good reward for his his good deed. But at the end of the day, he's in the hellfire. Sure. Like, what is, what is that? Like, why does that even matter at that point? Two drops of water. <coughs> Probably doesn't. <laughs> Allah I don't know it probably I, I, I don't know you want to say anything about that or yeah Allah right I mean obviously just like in paradise there's levels there's, in Jahannam there's levels too right yeah we're not going to go there <laughs> we'll talk about that later right but under the under the Jamhur right <laughs> the idea is that the hellfire lasts forever right so yeah Allah Anybody else? All right, so under this worldview, there's no justice, right? So one of the implications of a worldview that's based upon philosophical naturalism, there's no ultimate justice. So where is the justice when you actually need justice at the end, right? All right, now, this is, do you know what, the, do you guys know what this is? Yes. You do? Every Easter. Every Easter, really? <laughs> what is it? Okay. Oh, yeah, we know it's Easter Bunny. But what is this particular? What is this thing? It's chocolate. So, do we get these here? Because this example is coming from the UK. That's what I'm wondering. And when they put it up, I was like, I mean, not this specific brand, but but we have chocolate bunnies. Okay. So now here's, I'll, I'll, let's do a thought experiment, all right? Imagine that this chocolate bunny, right, who's, let's say it's taller than me, because it's six, supposed to be six feet, all right? And we placed it right here in the corner of the room, and I'm here, and I'm in front of you, right? And let's say, um, let's say Mawada. You know, we, we talked about something, like even Tamiya's opinion about the hellfire, he got really upset at me, and you know, he comes in, he's mad, right? He goes, how dare you know, Fahad had that opinion. <laughs> anyway, 
So you see him coming down the hall, and he's mad, right? And he's got like a hammer in his hand, like one of those big, like you know, jackhammers. Yeah. And so, <laughs> no, no, no. But for this example, you do. <laughs> Anyways, so you come, he's, he's coming down the hall, and you say, "Yo, Mavada, what's going on, man?" You're like, he's like, "Man, I'm so upset." You know, Fahad said this, and I'm just that's it. Now he walks in, and he says, "Look, I'm got, I gotta smash something." All right. Now there's me. And there's a chocolate bunny. <laughs> Which would you recommend for him to smash if he has to smash one? I mean, if you could smash one. <laughs> well, I'm not asking. That's why I'm not asking you. <laughs> well, what do you recommend he smash? The chocolate bunny. The chocolate bunny. Okay. Here's the question. Why? Because <coughs> he can't feel anything. Because he can't feel anything. Or the, chocolate the, chocolate the chocolate bunny, bunny can't feel anything. Neurons. So let's say, <laughs> let's say it was an actual bunny, oh, no, and he no, had no. to smash something. No, no. It's, it's he has to smash one of either me or the actual bunny. Not the bunny. So you're like, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> okay, let, let, let me, let, let's put it in a different context. Uh, not I don't know, who's more pious? <laughs> okay, let, let's put it this way. Abu Bakr and the bunny. Who would you recommend you smash? The bunny. The bunny, the bunny. right? Okay, why? And we'll stick with the chocolate bunny, all right? But why? The question is why? You can eat the bunny after. <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. <laughs> but can you? Because it becomes mate, right? Anyway, this, this is going in a separate area, so forget that. Forget that. Listen, guys. Okay, but why? Why not smash me and smash the chocolate bunny? For what reason? What's the reason? Yeah. Okay, but why? Okay, life, my life is more my life is more valuable, right? Our human life is more valuable. Okay, why? Yeah, go ahead. And and I'm saying under a philosophical naturalistic worldview, what makes my life more valuable than the chocolate bunny's life? I was gonna say because I'm human, so I value my life, so therefore I must value your life because you're also human. Okay, but why? Like so what? You value your life, that's great. But what does that do with me? Complexity. Okay, that's a good one because they do say that. They say, okay, well, complexity is, you know, like the human being is more complex. But so what? Even if it's complex, so. Uh, isn't the chocolate bunny just a collection of, of, of molecules and atoms and carbon, right? And so am I. So I'm just physical stuff, and the chocolate bunny is just physical stuff. But I can pump that out of the factory, and I can't pump it out of So? You're more valuable. Okay, that, that's my question though. Why am I more valuable? Oh, because you took last weekly and I thought you that we were. Oh my god. Okay. Yes. Uh, inanimate objects can't suffer, but human beings can, so it's a societal like, norm. So society is determined that. Yes, it's about not hurting your fellow human beings. Okay, why? Because of societal norms. Okay, so. <laughs> I, okay, think of it this way. Look, under philosophical naturalism. Right? What do we say about philosophical naturalism? A, that it is based upon a belief that the only thing you can do is explain things via physical processes, right? So that bunny is a collection of atoms and carbon and whatever, and so am I, okay? So what is it intrinsically about me that gives me more value than it? The, the value, why do you value it? Yeah? I'm just gonna say, it's, there's no intrinsic value, but there's extrinsic, there's extrinsic value. You bring more value to society. So it's basically a like a Benthinium worldview, like utilitarianism, yeah, right? Yeah, so it has I have more utility. Yeah. Okay, but what if I'm like a murderer? <laughs> I mean, I really don't bring more value in that case, right? You probably eat the chocolate bunny rather than have me around. 
But but do we consider me having more value even in that case? <laughs> yeah. So? So what? Because even if I die, all you're saying is I'm changing from one state of carbon molecules to another state. So what? Yeah. What makes, what gives it its value? What is the objective criteria that gives a human being more value than the clicker or whatever? All right. Wait, 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 I was going to call him Yusuf, man, sorry. (laughs) Well, I guess there's the argument of consequences, right? So if I I kill a bunny, there's no, like, from from a completely selfish standpoint, what is is better for me in the end? If I kill a bunny, nothing's going to happen, nobody's going to care, but if I kill you, right? Then eventually it'll, it'll it'll put me under a burden. I might have to go to trial, or I could go to prison. Okay, but does that still define value, though? I mean, uh, you, like your life is more valuable to me in my eyes. Okay, let's say you didn't get caught. <coughs> is it still more valuable? I, I guess you still feel bad. So I guess in that case. <laughs> <laughs> because so, so I guess uh, avoiding avoiding guilt. You still have to deal with it. Okay, that. but <laughs> even if you have guilt, what gives? me more value than the clicker like even if, whatever you feel like you feel rotten okay great I'm, that's that's good alhamdulillah the fitrah is coming up but my point is what gives one thing more value than the other like for instance i remember one time um sheikh jaffa you know alhamdulillah i, I someone i had the opportunity to, to study with and um sheikh jaffa Idris, and by the way he has a really cool website got a lot of articles on there bil arabi and english definitely check it out okay anyways now that my pitch for that is done. Um, so he mentioned he had gotten to, like he uh, like when the uh, United Nations Charter for Human Rights was first composed or whatever, he's, he's old, right? And so he, you know, they were complaining to him that some of the, some Muslim countries or Muslim majority countries didn't sign off on that, right? And they didn't sign off because there were certain things in the Charter for Human Rights that were running antagonists to the Sharia, okay? So when they came to him, they said, oh, don't you believe in human rights? And so he has, a, he has a background in philosophy too. So he goes, okay, let's stop. Before I, I believe in human rights, whatever it might be, he goes, what makes these rights, rights? <laughs> like, okay, the human rights, but wh- why? Why are they rights? Like, what makes these rights, rights? Right? And they said, oh, because everyone agreed upon them. He said, you just told me that three, <laughs> three Muslim countries like, didn't agree to them. So you don't have consensus. So what makes these rights, rights at the end? 
And they really they couldn't say anything after that. Okay? So under a worldview of philosophical naturalism, there's no way, right? And obviously we're not saying that someone that has this belief will um, will fulfill that, right? Will take it to its logical conclusion and basically go around killing people. Okay? That's not what we're saying. Because obviously from our perspective, we know that every human is born upon the fitrah. So they already have that. But what we're saying is if you take this idea to its logical conclusion, how do you establish value? Okay? From an Islamic point of view, where does value come from? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have an objective standard that transcends human subjectivity that is able to give you value, right? Indeed, we have honored, we have given value to the children of Adam. So where is that objective standard? It comes from Allah. And without it, how do you determine value? So there's no ultimate value under a worldview that proclaims philosophical naturalism. Yeah? Okay. No ultimate purpose. Now, before you guys read the slides, I should not do that. All right. We would say that things have a purpose, right? Yeah? Like your laptop has a purpose? Yeah? Okay. Your glasses have a lap have a purpose? Okay. Did your life have a purpose? Yes. Okay. As Muslims, yeah, obviously we're going to say that. But, I mean, under philosophical naturalism, what's the purpose of life? Your existence. To reproduce. To survive. To survive. Okay. What's that? To have a good time. To have a good time. Okay. What else? Suffering. Suffering is a purpose? Uh, okay. So under this so under this worldview, can you have a purpose? No? No? Okay, who disagrees? Okay, why do you disagree? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Answer it. Uh, what was the question? Yeah, why do you disagree with him? He said, like, I said, under philosophical naturalism, you can't have a purpose. And, or he said, you can't have a purpose. So I'm saying, how many people disagree with that? And you raise your hands for that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Why would you disagree? No, I, I don't think I disagree, but I, I say that like the one thing that could be a common argument would be that like the intrinsic idea that humans have the need to survive and come with evolution. Sure. But that could be counteracted, counteracted with the idea that who put the idea that we have to survive in us? Like, why is that in our DNA? Hmm. Okay. Question and answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, use it. I guess just because there is no inherent purpose mm -hmm. doesn't mean that there can't be a purpose at all. Very good. So what if they say, yeah, man, the purpose of my life is to, to join the NBA? Yeah. Okay. Could be. They could say that. So what's what? How would you respond to that? What then? What then? What after you join the NBA? Then I kept really rich. And then I buy lots of cool stuff. And then. <laughs> Have okay. a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. Like, why does it matter? Right? And it's like um, uh, Sheikh Shahrawi. Any, any Egyptians here? All right, there we go. You know Sheikh Shahrawi, right? Of course, who doesn't? So he was doing uh, the tafsir of an ayah. Uh, um, 
basically like indeed the life of this world is nothing but play nothing but you know uh, gathering more and so on and so forth and he was doing a tafsir this ayah and he said that the first thing that you realize when it comes to this ayah is the term that Allah uses for the world dunya a dunya right and the term dunya itself is not like a, a very positive term yeah in fact when you think of dunya you think of something lowly right and then it's juxtaposed with something that's the opposite of that yeah so it's like you have Hayat dunya and then you have Hayat al-Udya, which is the life of this world that's low, and then you have a life that's higher, okay? But then he said something else. He said, look, your purpose or your objective can never be defined by something where you can ask the question, and then what? Right? Because you're going to keep, you'll keep going. So, you know, you, you, you grow up, you go to elementary school, then after elementary school, you go to middle school, after middle school, you go to high school, right? And then what? What happens after high school? For you guys at least. <laughs> Drop out. <laughs> Alright, college, and then what? You get a job, and then what? You get married, and then what? Alright, then you then you have okay, house, kids, one of them in one in one order. Okay, then what? Grandkids, and then what? And then what? And then what? And then you die. Right? Okay. And then what? No, no, okay, you die, and then what? Is there any, is that's it? it? Well, I mean, okay, Yom al exactly, right? Then you go to the grave, and then what? And then you keep on going until you either end up in paradise or you end up in the hellfire. So what's the final objective? It has to be, well, yeah, of course, <laughs> right? For us it is, but what I'm saying is, if you're going to say, and then what, then that's not your ultimate objective, right? That doesn't define what the purpose of your life is. Like, what is, and so therefore, someone that assigns their own purpose is in fact just pretending to have a purpose. Um, one of the one of the brothers in the UK, Imran, he gave a really interesting example. Um, he said, because this argument, not argument, but when you tell someone this, like, look, when you're thinking about your life, your existence, and you mention that, look, what about purpose? Like, you, you don't have a purpose in your life. They say, no, I, have my, I make my own purpose. Well, in essence, what they're saying is, I'm pretending to have a purpose, right? And he gave a really interesting example. He said, imagine someone that they're, you put them in this empty room, and you give them a Rubik's Cube, right? You mix it up and you give it to them, okay? Now, for that person in that room, like, they'll solve the Rubik's Cube. That is their purpose. But then what? Do you get what I'm saying? Like, in other words, like, is that really their purpose? Is that the reason they're in the room? Or is there something outside of the room that's going to define what their purpose is, right? What, what, what it means for them to be in that room. Does that make sense? I don't know if the, the example is very... This thing, okay? So under a view of philosophical naturalism, right, that things have uh, only physical causes, you only have physical processes that are involved in that, there's no supernatural, right, there's no death, I mean, there's no afterlife, okay? Under that worldview, there's no ultimate purpose. Like, your life then has no meaning. You live a life that has, that's just meaningless, yeah? Okay, do we have a purpose? What's the purpose? Allah. Right, <laughs> right. I've only created men and jinn. I've only created men and jinn for the sake of for, for, for my worship, right? That's what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says. So we have a purpose. And that purpose is to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? What does worship mean? Because when you say it in English, it just it kind of loses a little bit of the value. So what is worship? Anybody know? Like if you told someone who's let's say not Muslim, like, hey man, you gotta worship God. How does it sound? Sound good? Especially in our individual kind of, you know, we love freedom world that we live in. 
and you tell someone, look, you got to submit and you got to worship God. Like, how does that come off? <laughs> right? No, man. I do what I want. <laughs> right? All right, worship. Well, what do we mean by worship? Obedience. Okay, obedience. Obedience to what? Okay, that's one aspect. Anybody else? Yeah. Doing that which pleases Allah and staying away from that which is pleasing Him. Very good. Okay. Submitting, in other words. What else? There's many facets to this, by the way. I want to unravel this so that when you present it to someone that's under this worldview, it won't just come off as, well, you've got to worship God. You've got to be a slave to God. <laughs> that's just not, not come off very good, right? What else? What do we mean by ibadah? That's the term, right? What do we mean? Yeah. Okay. Good, good. Anybody else? Mehdi, you're being really quiet, man. What's up? Yes. So, what do we mean by Ibadah? Our purpose is to worship Allah Taala the best way we can. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. All right. So, yeah. Do good, avoid bad. Okay. That, that's my son's favorite answer, by the way. Every time I ask him, so what did you learn in Islamic studies today? He said, we learned to be good and not be bad. <laughs> all the time. I'm like, really? That, that's all you learned? Like, why am I paying for Islamic school? <laughs> you just learned it at home, right? All right. Um, ibadah. So one of the definitions that comes from uh, Ibn Qayyim and Ibn Taymiyyah, right? And by the way, I know a lot of people are like, why, why you, do you keep mentioning them? Why do you point to me whenever you say that? Like, 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 like wait a minute. Where's Imam al-Ghazali? Anyway. Exactly. Um, so the definition that he says that, that ibadah is يعني, it is the highest state or highest point of love coupled with the highest state of submission and you need to have both in order for you to call it ibadah okay? so a person, let's say that like, like a father loves his kids okay? but he's not going to submit to his kids so that's not ibadah similarly a tyrant may have you know, rulership over his subjects right? and they may submit to him but they probably don't love him Right? It's only when you couple this kind of high state of love and the high state of submission is what you call ibadah. Therefore, you worship Allah because of who Allah is. Right? You recognize that. And therefore, that state of submission is not like a slave that's being dragged, but rather it's someone that has absolute love for the one that brought him here. Right? For the one that gave him life. The one that blessed him. And for the qualities that Allah himself has. Yeah? So when we talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that he's just, that he's merciful, and so on, and so on, and so forth. Right? So that's what we mean by ibadah, and that's the very purpose, is this very submission in this state of love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Okay, moving on. How many people have heard um, the airplane example? Because I've done it like khutbahs all over the time. One, two, did you get the rest of you guys have it? Oh man, okay. I thought everyone would be like, yes, we've heard it. Um, all right, so here's the example. Imagine that right now, as you're sitting in this class, you black out blacked out, and then all of a sudden you wake up and you're in an airplane. Alright? Now, this airplane, you're in first class. The seats are very comfortable. Okay? You're like the most inc incredible seats you've ever sat in. Okay? And the temperature is just... <laughs> maybe. The temperature is just right. You know, because one of the things about human beings is we never get the right temperature. Right? Either it's a little too hot or a little too cold or really hot or really cold. Like, it's never just right. Yeah? Uh, especially if you're married, it's never just right. But anyway, <laughs> so the temperature on the plane Facts. is, yeah, the temperature on the plane is just right. <laughs> 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 the 
So, coming back to the example, <laughs> the temperature on the plane is just right, okay? The, the, the air quality is great, and you know, you look out the window and there's like this beautiful sunrise, and so visually it's just, it's, it's amazing, yeah? And after a little while, you hear the food cart coming by, okay? And you start smelling, right? What's, uh, what's your favorite food, man? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like everything. <laughs> what's, what's your favorite? Like, at, like uh, what, well, if you want something right now, what would it be? Grilled chicken. Grilled chicken. Right? Grilled, really? That's your favorite food? <laughs> <laughs> you try to like, you know. No. No? Alright, All right, grilled chicken or whatever. Put in place whatever your favorite food is. Biryani, halim, you know, couscous, whatever it is. Whatever you like, right? Your favorite food. You can smell it, right? It's coming and the, the host or the hostess comes and they serve it to you. And you eat it and it's the, it, oh my God, it like melts in your mouth. It's amazing. Yeah? So you've got like this amazing food, okay? The seats are comfortable, the temperature's perfect, the scenery is amazing, right? Would you be happy? No, yes. Okay, how many people say yes, you'd be happy? Okay. Okay. Would you be content and happy? No. Okay, why? Yeah. So I have a question. Sure. Uh, are you the only one on that plane? <laughs> you don't know that. No, it's a good question. You don't know that. You don't know that. Okay. So, would you be content and happy? Would you have ultimate happiness? Okay, why? Yeah. How'd you get there? Right, you'd have some questions, right? Like, okay, how did I get I was sitting in the classroom listening to, to you know, Fahad go on and on, and all of a sudden I blacked out and now I'm on this plane. So, one of the first questions is what? How did I get here? Any, anyone else have any questions? Where yeah, where's the plane going? Right? You said, is there a pilot? That's another one. I didn't think about that one. Is there a pilot? Like, is there anybody else in this plane besides me and the host? Right? Right. Okay. So where's the plane going? How did I get here? And what is my purpose? What am I doing on this plane? Right? So if you think about life, and once you enter into a state of consciousness, you're kind of like on this plane of life. Right? You, you know, you, you popped into existence, okay, in a sense, and you're now conscious, so wouldn't you have that question about your existence as well? Like, wait a minute, on this plane, it's going somewhere, your life is going somewhere, so where is it going? How did I get here? And what am I supposed to be doing here? What's my purpose, right? So do you have ultimate happiness in a state which says that you're nothing more than just atoms, molecules, and so on and so forth that's just been thrown together randomly, right? You're basically a product of random, non-rational, non-intentional, blind processes. So under that worldview, how do you fare in terms of ultimate happiness? Because most people think that happiness is like a journey, but in fact, you're always trying to reach happiness, yeah? You're always trying to get to happiness. Like, I want a better job, why? To be happy. Right? You want a better job. Okay, why? To be happy. You want to get married. Why? To be happy. So you're always looking for happiness, right? The point is, is so you're, all, you're looking for, in a sense, ultimate happiness. Yeah. Of course. That was one of the questions, right? Why, why do I exist? Right? That's an existential question. If you don't have that, if you don't know why, well, that's an existential disaster, right? And I can tell you, look, in, in, in like the 15, 20 years that I've been making dawah, right? Um, it's, yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been very long. <laughs> so I can tell you, just that question alone 
has has caused people to come into Islam. Like, just ask them, like, why why do you exist? What is the purpose of your existence? And they never thought about it. Or if they thought about it, they had they had nowhere to go. <coughs> Simply telling them, look, you came from Allah. You know, the, the Allah Subhanahu wa Taala who has these qualities and these qualities and deserves your worship. And so this is the very purpose, and that was it because it was just purpose. You know. Because those existential questions, and you know, sometimes I, I, I ask people, I said, how many people outside of this classroom are walking around and have no idea what their purpose is and are looking for this ultimate happiness that you haven't talked to? You haven't told them about Islam. You have this gift, haven't shared it. How many people like that, right? I remember Sheikh Kamala Mecki said, you know, uh, we were at this, um, you know, this like million man march in Washington, D.C., and he said that, you know, they, like he saw some guy and they were out making dawah like giving out flyers and pamphlets or whatever and he says I looked at this guy and he looked like a shaitan right he had like big like spiked purple hair right shaved from the sides he had like tattoos everywhere he had piercings everywhere like nose ears like tongue eye, everything everything was pierced and on top of that he said he was wearing white contact lenses so I saw him and I'm, I have my pamphlet I'm like and then I looked over and I saw this night nice Caucasian couple they're sitting there the birds are singing so he's like I'm not making doubt of that shit Don. it's like he walked over <laughs> right he said a few minutes later the brothers is like come here and they went to him and this man said that I woke up today searching for Allah searching for my purpose like what am I doing here and I ran into you guys right and the moral of the story is don't judge a book by its cover yeah but beyond that is like how many people are like that that they had these existential questions because they're alive, because they're human beings, and yet they have nowhere to go. And the people that are holding that message are doing what? Yeah, it's just something to think about, right? That on the Day of Judgment, when we're standing for Allah and your, your classmate or whatever it was, your, your friend in, you know, in class, hey man, I was sitting next to Ahmad or, you know, Ahmad or Muhammad or you know, whoever, Aisha, for, for two years we took classes together. Not once did they tell me about Allah or his messenger or about Tawheed? Right? Anyway, that's just me being an old uncle. All right. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've had people that tell me um, to claim, like, to believe in Allah or in a higher power because of hope or happiness is foolish. Yeah. Because it's the idea of, like, I'm clinging to this because I want to happy, so I create. Like, that's, sure. that's their notion. So when we started, remember, I said these are not, like, rational arguments. You're not rationally arguing the point. You're oh, saying, yeah. as a human being, where does this leave you? Because this is a human need, right? Like at yeah. the end of the day, you you question your existence. Any 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 person, generally, right? Unless they're on the plane and really enjoying the caviar or whatever they like, right? But you're gonna ask, right? Like, yeah. so where is my life going? Yeah. Because you know they say like one of the things that you're absolutely certain about is death. Yeah. In fact, there's a there's a schematic or like a hierarchy when it comes to yaqeen. I think I mentioned this last time. Yeah. Like you have, uh, you have ilm al-yaqeen, ayn al-yaqeen, haq al-yaqeen, right? So you have a knowledge of certainty. You have certainty that's knowledge-based. You have certainty that's something that you view. And then you have absolute certainty that you experience, right? So in, in the context of death, you have ilm al-yaqeen. Like everybody knows they're going to die. Muslim, non-Muslim, doesn't matter, right? How many people think you're not going to die? Nobody, right? You could probably ask this to anyone unless they're, you know, <laughs> they have some issue with their mental faculties. They know they're going to die. Now that's ilm al-yaqeen. You know that for a fact. Right? But then what happens when you're about to die? You see the angel of death. And what happens when you actually go through death? Haqq al-yaqeen. You actually experience it. 
So your levels of certainty actually go up, right? So certainty is not at one level either. Anyway, don't know how I got sidetracked on that. But anyway, okay. So under this worldview that <coughs> basically states that everything came via physical, random, non-rational, non-intentional, blind processes, where is the ultimate happiness when it counts, right? Again, this is not a, a, a hardcore rational argument that you're trying to present to like, you know, demolish the guy. You're just talking to him as a human. Like, look, man, what do you think about this? Like, when you need hope, where's the hope? When you think about justice, where's the ultimate justice, right? When you think about your purpose, like, why do you exist? Where is it? And are you really truly happy when it comes to your existence? Yeah? Yeah. This is like a reason like people like take drugs and stuff because they like question their existence, but they can't find an answer, so they like just take something so they just forget about like their question that they have. Like, there, it's true. You know, um, uh, the the the, the, the <coughs> brother I mentioned, Imran. So he was kind of going back and forth with atheism early on in his life, right before his he was uh, started practicing and stuff. Um, and he says that, you know, I would, I would, um, I would pass by like these meat shops. <laughs> It's kind of a weird example, but you know, like the butchers, and then they hang like after they after they've finished off with the meat, they hang like the the, the carcass, right? He said, I pass by and I start looking at it, and I'm like, what's the difference between me and that piece of meat that's just hanging there, right? And a lot of people are like that, yeah. But he did say something else interesting. He said, you know, um, once someone becomes an atheist, they actually have like these support groups online because of these questions. Well, I, I don't know about that, but like once you enter. There's like proper like counseling and things like that you have to go through because these questions are kind of completely left to the wind, right? That's a reality, okay? As opposed to the rational arguments and so on and so forth. Yeah. I keep thinking you have a question. Dude, like, just chilling. Man. Just chilling. Okay. All right. Any questions? Yeah. Yeah. I guess like in your experience, um, not to touch more doubt, but just from people you meet, I guess too. Um, I guess like what percentage of people like ask themselves like, these questions? Like, do they have like a nine? Um, I'd say in this day and age, most people don't care. Most people are on the plane, they're just enjoying the caviar. You know, until something happens. And that's sometimes why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala puts people in a certain state, right? They get shaken, shook, shaken up because of, for some reason, you know? And so therefore, they're like, wait a minute, I never thought about what happens after I die, right? What is my ultimate purpose? But a lot of times when, a lot of times when you're just living life, like you never think about these things, you know? And that's what a, one of the strange things about death as well. Like, it's the one thing you know absolutely. You know you're going to die. But how many people, including Muslims, think about death? Like, think about that you're going to meet Allah. You know? Very few. And we're not excluded from that. Like, when's the last time you thought about, well, I could die in the next five minutes? Right? All right, any other questions before we move on? Because we have one more section. You want a break? We're going to just blow through it. How many people want a break? Raise your hands. Nobody? All right, let's just blow through it then. Okay. Alright, let's move on to self-evident truths. Actually, you know what? If you guys could stand up and then sit back down, that would be really great. Because this next section, <laughs> it's not like just human. Now it's like, we're going to start putting our thinking caps on. There we go. Alright, go ahead and take a seat. No, there's not. We're just going to cover this and then we're done. That's it. Okay.
We hold these truths to be self-evident. Okay. A created equal right. Okay. All right. So I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you went to school with a guy named David or some friend of yours who you remember that they were really annoying because they would, they would give you like these crazy ideas, okay? So it's been 10 years, you've got a job, you're working, you're married, and your phone rings and this comes up and it's David. And you're looking at your phone and you're like, should I pick up? Should I send, let him go to voicemail? Uh, if, you have a phone, if you have a voicemail like mine, my voicemail says, please do not leave me a message. If you'd like to contact me, please text me. I will not check my messages. Anyways, <laughs> so you're thinking, should I pick up? All right? Now something inside, you haven't seen him in 10 years. You remember him being really annoying. Yet you're like, okay, let me just pick up. You know, it's been 10 years. I'm sure he's grown, he's matured. So you pick up. Hey, David, what's going on? Like, hey man, what's up? You're like, nothing much. He goes, you know what? Uh, I heard you live in Austin. I'm going to be coming by. Let's go have dinner. And you're like, oh. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, come on. Right? So you're like, okay, so reluctantly you agree, and you go and you have dinner with him, and you're talking, he's still got his, you know, crazy ideas, and at one point he goes, you know what, you know what, Fahad, I need to tell you something, and it's something that I, that I just discovered. The thing is, the past is not real, okay? The past, what were you experienced five minutes ago, or an hour ago, it's not real, it didn't happen. You live in the moment. The past is not real. Okay. Now you have a couple of options here, right? A, option number one. Okay, option number one. You can tell, <laughs> that might be option, four options actually. All right, so you have four options here, all right? Option number one, you could tell him, David, that is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, right? You need to prove to me that the past is not real. That's one option. Option B, David, let me prove to you why the past is real. Okay. Option number three, you get up and you're like, yo, peace out. You're crazy. All right. And option number four that he gave, just, right? All right. Which option, right? What's that? It didn't happen. You didn't remember it, right? All right. Which option from amongst the two? From amongst the two, because we're civilized people, we don't do that, right? Which option amongst the first two? Okay, you don't want to leave. Which option amongst the first two should you take? First one, why? What was the first one, once again? What's that? Yeah, so you ask him, like, prove me the past doesn't exist, okay? You were about to say something? Or is that what you are going to say? Okay, so, but let's look at the nature of the claim he's making. Right? Because that's what we want to look at. All right? The point is, do you have to prove that the past is real? Or is that self-evidently true? Okay. So who has the burden of proof? Me or David? David. Okay. Again, why? Because he made that claim. Okay. But let's say he makes a claim that is true. Let's say, you know what? Uh, it's four o'clock. Whatever. <laughs> Just a claim that's true, but he makes a claim. So, does he still have to prove it? No. It's not about the claim. It's not about the fact that he made the claim, but it's about what claim is he making, is what I'm trying to stress, right? It's the nature of the claim he's making. So what is it about this claim where you would say, you need to provide the proof? What do you think? It's self-evidently true. It's true by default. 
right? So when it comes to a claim that is self-evidently true, you don't ask for proof, but the honest of proof is upon the other person, right? Okay. And that's true with a wide range of self-evidently true claims, okay? All right. So when it comes to who has the burden of proof, the person that's negating a self-evident truth is the one who's going to bring or should bring the, the proof, right? All right. Now, why are we going down this path, by the way? What are we claiming? What do you think we're going to claim? Okay, that God is self-evidently true, right? Because if that's the case and you can show that, then the burden of proof is not upon you to provide the proof, right? Because in essence, when someone comes to you and says, prove to me God exists, yeah? We tend to just jump right in and be like, well, the thing is you have the, you know, the, 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 the Kalam cosmological argument, blah, 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 blah. you know, you start getting in the, and you have to say, stop and take a step back and question the question. Well, wait a minute. Why do I have to bring the proof? Right? You get what I'm saying? So you're taking a step back and saying, hold on a second. Is it upon me to bring the proof or is it upon you to bring the proof? Right? In fact, even in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't bring proofs for his existence in that say. In fact, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks very objectively and then asks the opposite. Afillahi shak? Is there any doubt in, the existence, in, in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Right? And they're always in question form. Yeah? So the point is, who has the responsibility to bring the burden of proof? The burden of proof is upon the person that is trying to negate a self-evident truth. And where we're going to go with this is to, is to show that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is self-evidently true. Okay? And we'll get into that in a second because it's not... Oh, we'll get into that in a second. second. And the thing to remember is that there's a number of things that we consider self-evidently true. Axioms. Right? Those that are in the super-rational for those of you who were here last time. Yeah? They're self-evidently true. Do you mind if I close this? Alright. And the thing is, um, basic elements of thought are based upon elements that are self-evidently true or true by default. Okay? Science is based on these things that are self-evidently true or true by default. For example, the uniformity of nature. Right? And I mentioned this last time. Okay? In other words, you make an assumption that nature is uniform. Yeah? And that's how science makes progress. So if I drop this, this clicker, I'm going to assume it's going to fall, right? And therefore, I, I can make progress. Whether I'm here, whether I'm in Australia, whether I'm in Karachi, it doesn't matter, right? My point is, I assume that if I drop the clicker, which I'm not because I paid a lot for it, but if I drop it, it'll fall, okay? Now, that's an assumption because it's not absolutely guaranteed, but from observation, you know that, okay, like nature is uniform. So science also works on things that are self-evidently true. You can't prove them because you can't go to the future, but you assume them. Yeah? Okay. Um, the reality of the past, we talked about that. Right? That's self-evidently true. You don't, no one comes to you and says, well, today we're going to take a class on how the past is real. Right? Um, the validity of our reasoning. The fact that you reason itself. Like, why is reasoning valid? Think about it. Like, do you have to prove that <laughs> like uh, reasoning is a valid means of Coming to conclusions? Or should you just be unreasonable? <laughs> what do you think? Do you have to prove that you, should, that you should be using your reason? No, because that is a self-evident truth. That's true by default, okay? That your reasoning is valid. There's a concept in philosophy as well talking about the existence of other minds. 
Like, you know you have a mind, but how do I know Asad has a mind that is functioning by it, you know? Or Hamza, okay, if he doesn't want to take that. <laughs> right? Like, what if I just say, no, I'm the only mind here? Halas. Right? I mean, can I prove that they have minds? From my perspective? I can't prove that. I you can't prove. Well, I mean, I mean, anyone in this room, right? So even the existence of other minds is a self-evident truth. You don't prove it, okay? Someone makes a claim that no one else has a brain. No one else thinks. Halas. All right? How are you going to prove it? It's self-evidently true. Yeah? And there's lots of other. The existence of the external world. Okay? That there are things that are outside of me that are actually physical that I can pick up and things like that. All right? What if someone says, okay, prove it? Self-evidently true. It's true by default. Okay? Now, so at the end, the honest of proof is upon the one making the claim. Now, there are certain characteristics of something that is self-evidently true. Okay? Certain characteristics, and there's three specifically. Your notes have four, but after reviewing them, we figured that number three and number four are basically the same thing, so we kind of got rid of it. All right? Three characteristics. Now, I want to stop here for a second. Notice I didn't say criteria. Why? Why does the slide not say criteria of self-evident truths? What do you think? Exactly. They're self-evidently true, so they don't have criteria. You don't prove them. So the most we're saying right now is that when you look at self-evident truths, they share these characteristics. Make sense? Yeah? So that's why you don't say to prove a self-evident truth because that's kind of negating the very thing you started from. Yeah? Okay. So they have a couple of characteristics. Number one, they're universal. Now, what do we mean by universal? Without reading the slide. Univers they're universal. What do you think? Okay. Anybody else? Yeah. Not restricted to any sort of construct, like a societal construct or any sort of like yes, like bias or that sort. Right. So what we say when they say we're universal, not that everyone agrees upon them, not that there's ijma, right? Right. What we're saying is that they're cross-cultural, meaning whatever culture you're in, whatever society you're in, they're 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 there. They're accepted as being self-evidently true. Okay. So just to keep in keep this in mind. By universal here, we don't mean that everyone agrees that they're true. What we're saying is that they're cross-cultural. You go across different cultures, whether you're in you know, an Egyptian culture, whether you're in a Russian culture, whatever it is, that they're considered self-evidently true. So that's one characteristic. The second characteristic is that they are untaught. You have this kind of this, uh, this, this means of intuition, which is actually a source of knowledge in some philosophical circles, right? That intuition itself how you, it's not that you have external information that someone's teaching you this but rather you know it by, by, by kind of your own experience whatever it might be yeah we'll get to that in a second all right so um so it's untaught so no one teaches you these things it's not like you know when i was like seven my mom sat me down and said Fahad beta, you know the past five minutes ago it happened right it, that's, it doesn't happen like that right it's just naturally, intuitively, you grow up and you understand that the past is real. Yeah? Did anyone learn that in school? That the past is real? All right. Exactly. Right? So it's untaught. The last one is that it's intuitive. What we mean by intuitive here is that if we took the opposite to say that it's untrue, you'd be left with more problems and solutions. It's, it's a can of worms that you're opening up by saying the exact opposite. Right? If you, like, think about it. If you thought that the, the past is not true. What sort of issues would that bring up? Like your memories, how do you explain those? How do you explain time? 
How do you explain experiences? All of those things then become like open questions, all right? So it leads to more problems than things that it answers, right? So if you put like, um, well, like if you put the, the past being real and under these qualities, all right? Is it universal? Is there any culture that thinks that past is not real? Any country? What do you think? No, right? You can go anywhere, and if you tell someone that, no matter what village you go to, and say, look, the past, it's not real, you know, either you'll, they'll kill you or, or something, right? It's just, you're not, you're not going to get a disagreement on that, yeah? Okay, so it's cross-cultural. Is it something that's taught, the past being real? You learned that in school. No, you don't. All right, is it intuitive? Meaning, does it solve more problems than, does it give more solutions or does it give more problems? You thought that the past was not real. More problems. Your memory. What happened five minutes ago? Experiences. All of those things. Now they become open questions. Yeah? All right. So how do we apply this when it comes to the existence of Allah? Right? Everyone with me so far? Right? The characteristics? Okay. What we're saying when we're talking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we're not saying, for those of you who have studied aqidah in the framework of like the three categories or three three ways of explaining tawheed, right? So you have tawheed al-rububiyyah, tawheed al-uluhiyyah, or tawheed asma'ul sifat, right? You have the tawheed, the Allah's oneness in terms of him being Rabb, the creator, the sustainer, and the one that has dominion over everything, right? Al-khalq wal-mulk wa tadbir, yeah? Okay. And then you have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is worthy of worship. And then you have Allah via his names and attributes, okay? What we're saying here is we're talking about Allah's rububiyyah, but one section of that, right? We're not saying that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is lacking in other areas, but what we're saying is we're talking about Allah as al-khaliq, that he is a creator, right? So we're not getting into the idea of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being mudabbir, right? That he's a manager of the affairs or that he is... Um, uh, that he has a mulk, right? He's not malik in this case, that he has dominion. What we're talking about is his creative ability, that he is the creator, okay? In other words, what we're saying is that things have prior creative causes. Everyone with me so far? Okay, what do I mean by prior creative causes? All right, so if I put up a painting like up, up on the screen, what is your assumption about the painting? Does it have a painter? Okay, someone that painted it, yeah? That is something that we say is self-evidently true, right? Now put it, to the, put it to the test. Is it universal? Like if you took that painting anywhere in the world, what would be the assumption? Would it be that it had a painter? Is it cross-cultural? Yes, okay. Is it untaught? Do you grow up and someone actually teaches you that causes have effects, that there are prior causal relations, right? It's like, um, I think... Uh, uh, the Shara of Aqidah Tahawiyah uh, mentions the Shara mentions um, that even a child that if you were to like hide from the child and throw something right and the child kind of hears that it's landing that it's going to look back basically right because there's an effect and then there's a cause right so you're not exactly taught that but it automatically intuitively just knows that right like okay there's there's an effect so there's a cause right what's that I have to get back with you on that. There's a few, but I forgot which, which one mentions it. But you get the point, right? That there's an effect, and that therefore it's assumed there's a cause. Even a child recognizes that, yeah? So prior creative causes. Okay, so I took the painting. All right, you're not taught that. Is that the easiest interpretation? 
that someone actually put it together as opposed to someone like just buckets of paint came out of the sky and put this painting together? Which one is an easier interpretation? Depends on the painting. Are you talking Jack and Pollock? I'm talking about like a nice, you know, like this picture, right? <laughs> like you just take this one, you know, the words and the Aira sign and all that other stuff. All right? So modern art is like, I don't think anyone made that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like a beautiful scenery with like mountains and trees and birds and all sorts of other things. All right? So does it make more sense that a painter actually put that together? Or does it make more sense that it just kind of paint just was just thrown on the paper and it just happened? Which one makes more sense? Intuitively. It had a painter, right? And it, now, that's universal. It's untaught. It's intuitive. Okay? Now, similarly, when it comes to Allah's creative ability, you extend that to the universe. Why is it different? That's really the question. If there's prior creative causes then why is there not a prior creative cause when it comes to this world or the human being or anything else? Do you get what I'm saying? To say the opposite is someone negating a self-evidently truth. A self-evident truth, right? Prior creative causes, they need to bring the proof. Do you get how that how we went from point A to point B? Or everyone like, what? Yeah. If we're mentioning that a lot is self-evident, yeah. when you talk about cross-cultural, yeah. So remember, we're not talking about the existence of Allah, right? We're talking about prior creative causes. Remember, we're talking about his attribute of being al-khaliq. So not all the attributes would fit. They're not all like self-evidently true. And in fact, that's why we are given those names and attributes. We're informed about them because they're not self-evidently true, right? That's the whole purpose. That's why the Quran has them in there, right? Um, but in terms of the idea of khalq, things having prior creative processes, well, that is self-evidently true, right? Because to believe the opposite gives you more problems. It's cross-cultural. Like anywhere you go, any sort of effect is going to have a cause, yeah? It's, it's universal. And it's not taught. Like you're not taught that this, because there's an effect, there's going to be a cause. You kind of intuitively know that, Yeah? Yeah, but that's a historical, this thing. So we didn't say cross time, because that becomes a bit difficult to substantiate. But we said cross cultural. So, because I know like Hamza thought about this too, and then we had some discussions, and <laughs> that didn't go very far. <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Um, so, like, if just playing the devil's advocate, please, I'm hoping more people do that. <laughs> yeah. Can't people argue that it is untaught, saying that religion is this? idea that's based off of biblical text and sure. that we got the biblical text sure. that some people believe that people wrote and based off of that that's why we want to believe this idea sure. when in fact it's just something that was fed into us and it's not something that's untapped. So what we're, we're not saying here that religion is self-evident. Okay. We're saying that a creator is self-evident. Okay. The idea of prior creative causes right? That that process is self-evident. Right? And so now the question is, can you extend that process to the human being, to life, to anything, right? So that idea of there being prior creative processes is what we're talking about here. That's why I said we're not talking about all of the names and attributes of Allah. And by extension, we're not talking about religion, right? Because that's not what we're talking about. We're saying that if you're saying that there's no creator, who has the burden of proof? That's what I'm trying to say.
Yeah. And what about when someone asks who created the creator? Okay, well, we can have that discussion, but do you admit that the burden of proof for you to say that there's no creator is upon you? Mm-hmm. If you say that, then yeah, we can talk about that. Yeah. But my thing is that what I'm trying to say is that the burden of proof to say that there's no creator doesn't fall on me, it falls on you, right? Because of prior creative processes. Are you going to say something? Yeah. Same thing? Okay. Yeah. When you're saying creator, do you just mean like any like thing like or things as well? As well? You could, but then there's another section we have is the oneness of God. Oh. My God is one. But this is now, right now, you're going from someone that has a belief that there's no God. There's no creator, right? There's no khaliq, right? And that's where we're going from. So what we're trying to say is that there is a creator because you have creation, right? And just like anything else, you have creation, right? So therefore, it necessitates that you have a creator. Yeah? What are some of the issues with this, though? Like, I don't want you guys passively listening. I want you to pretend to be atheists. <laughs> I mean, not that you are, but obviously, right? But what are some of the issues? What if, like, what could someone come and say, okay, but what about this? Yes, Asim. Like the Big Bang. <laughs> like, like, well, that was the creator. Like, the Big Bang started it all. So the Big that Bang created. Like yeah, that's a good one. What created the Big Bang? Well, then you, then, like, but okay, but you admit that there's a there's a prior causal there's a prior cause. I mean, of course, everyone has like a parent. I think they come from somewhere. Sure. But then, if you if you can then question the creation of the Big Bang, yeah. then why can't you question the creation of God? Oh, uh, okay. So this is all going back to like who created the creator. Yeah. Yeah. If you guys really want to answer that one. <laughs> but at least you admit that there is a prior creative po- cause, right? Because that's the point we're trying to get to. Right. Yeah. Anybody else? Same thing? All right. So since everyone's really curious about who created the creator, <laughs> all right. Who knows how to answer? Yeah. Singularity of matter. 
Sure, sure. But like, there has to be some kind there of... There has to be a starting point. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, so you can't have infinity, basically. Exactly. Okay. You can't have infinity. Okay. Yeah. All right, good. Who else wants to take a crack at it? So the ultimate creator cannot be created. <laughs> sure. So the ultimate creator cannot be created. Because, yeah. like, if you, if you state that claim, yeah. then that's, like, you can't prove that. Like... So like you're saying you can't prove that there's an ultimate creator? No. So why go through all this whole... <laughs> 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 you can't prove that an ultimate creator was... Like, the ultimate... Like, the start, like what you're saying, the point sure. where, it, where you believe that there is an entity, a creator with no beginning yeah. and no end. Yeah. Like, if you try to prove that that creator, the ultimate creator, had a beginning, yeah. then you're just going back into the cycle. Mm. So you, Okay, so let, let's ask a different question before you guys... Asin's itching. He's like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> all right. Um, is infinity real? Yes, yes, and, yes and no. No. Ooh. Yes and no. There's actual and potential right. infinity. Alright, so hang on to that. Who says yes, infinity is real? Um, raise your hands. Who says infinity is real? Look, be confident, man. Come on. The, the doors are closed. <laughs> no cameras. How many people say infinity is real? Okay, how many people say infinity is not real? One, two, three. Okay, for the people that say infinity is real, yeah, why do you yeah. say that? Yes? Okay, that's great. I'm saying in the real world, is infinity real? Okay, can you show it to me? I'm not saying... So, there's mathematical infinity, which is based on possibilities, right? So mathematically... Um, if I want to traverse the room, right? So I could think about it and be like, all right, in order to tra traverse the room, I need to pass by the halfway point, right? But then in order to pass the halfway point, I have to pass by the halfway point of that halfway point, okay? And in order to pass by that halfway point, I have to pass by the halfway point of the halfway point of the halfway point, okay? So technically, I could go on for infinity, right? And so I shouldn't be able to pass because until I solve it, but I can walk over to the other side of the room, right? And have a finite travel mathematically, you could have infinity. So I'm saying, does infinity exist in the real world? No. Yeah. So the center of a black hole has infinite density. Okay, and how do you know that? <laughs> how, how do you know that? Technically not infinite density, otherwise you get all these. No, 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 I mean the exact, the exact like little singularity. Well, that, that's still a theoretical. Okay, let, let me ask you this. Give me a practical example in our lives where infinity exists. How about that? In your practical lives, doesn't can you ever show infinity? Like if I say, if I sh if I give you a bag, listen, listen. If I give you a bag, and I say there's an infinite number of balls in the bag, okay, is that possible? Can that actually happen? No. Yeah. Sure. Can't you show that the size of the universe is infinite? Mathematically or in reality? Because remember, look, when we talk about mathematical principles, they're what's known as metaphysical principles, right? That the mathematics is based on certain metaphysical assumptions, okay? Metaphysical and physical are two different things. I'm saying in the physical world, can you show, can you show in the infinite, right? Metaphysically, yes. Like you've got mathematics and you can, on terms of paper, sure. Like I could not traverse this room because I have to keep on dividing half, like infinitely, right? But yet I can. So... Mathematically, it exists. I'm not talking about mathematically, right? I'm talking about in this world, can you show me infinity? Infinity. 
Can you give me an example of like a bag of balls, you know, bricks, I mean something? Yeah. Yeah, in this world. No, I want in this world. <laughs> in this world, right? Okay, thank you. Oh, yes, go ahead. Like decaying of matter, for example, like half lives. Okay, like, like so that happens. Infinitely go, 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 and we can, we can actually like measure that too. But you haven't gone like to the end. Of, you haven't got to the end of the chain yeah, though. Yeah. If that's the case. Like if that's it's the in, point. Like infinity, you never get to the end of the chain. But right? you wouldn't know that. That's what I'm trying to say. You like die before that. Yeah, like you get it. Right. An answer, so that's even something. Even that you can't show. Because let's say you die before it, but so what? Like you haven't shown anything. You haven't shown it to keep on going because you can never do that. Yeah. Like in the physical world that we live in, you cannot show someone infinity. Okay. Now that's besides the point. My point is that if you said who created the creator, you're actually talking about an infinite regress. Okay. Meaning that there has to be like, like was said earlier, that there has to be a starting point. Okay, and the example that I usually like to give is my chai example. You guys know my chai example? What's that? You know my chai example? It's my most popular example. Okay, so imagine now, so I used to be like a, a chai addict, right? I've cut down a lot. Asin's like, yo, he still drinks a lot. But anyway, <laughs> I've cut down a lot though, okay? So let's assume that I'm craving like this karak cup of <laughs> chai, right? Okay, like this chai that's like, you know, bil halib, you know, okay? It's just amazing desi chai, okay? So I'm craving this chai, and I ask my shy, shy, okay, shy mahalib, okay, <laughs> okay. So I'm craving this, I'm craving this chai or shy, whatever, however you want to say it. And I ask my wife, I said, dear, could you make me a cup of tea, okay? You know, we have strong marriage, mashallah, married for a long time. Please, of course, please, yeah. He's, he's good. He's gonna be mashallah, strong marriage. Mashallah. All right. Please, can I have this cup of chai? She's like, look. I don't, I don't mind making a cup of chai, but I have to ask your mom if she's okay with it, okay? And my mom then says, not a problem, but I need to ask your dad. And then my dad says, it's not a problem, but I need to call Masood uncle, right? And ask him if it's okay, right? Because he's my older brother, okay? Then he calls Masood uncle, and Masood uncle says, I don't have a problem with that, but we need to ask um, your grandfather, okay? So then my grandfather says, look, I don't mind, but because I always trust the opinion of my roommate, I need to ask him. So my roommate then says, or his roommate then says, okay, it's not a problem, but you know, I need to ask my mom. Okay? And then he calls his mom, and his mom says, well, the thing is, I had a roommate, and I need to ask her. Okay? Now, if this goes on forever, will I ever get a cup of chai? No. Yeah, go ahead. What? <laughs> just make, yeah, at that point, just make it yourself. Come on, right? Yeah. You couldn't make it yourself. Yeah, okay. But I'm saying, will I get a cup of chai in this schematic if it goes on forever? Right? Yeah. But I'm saying, if it were to go on forever. Like, it just kept on going. Right? So, could I get, do I get the cup of chai? No, okay. If the universe existed infinitely, the creator who had a creator who had a creator who had ad infinitum, would you be here? No. Would there be any creation? No. no. So that necessitates that there is an uncreated creator that started everything. And by the way, this is something we're going to be talking about on the argument from the Quran, right? In the in the ayah, right? We're going to be talking about this very argument in that section. But since you guys were ins insistent on bringing it up, <laughs> we brought it up. 
You cannot have an infinite regress of historical <laughs> events, basically, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. Yes, Asin. So, uh, the, like, I guess, so if somebody accepts that, right, like yeah. as an atheist, somebody can say, okay, I accept it as an ultimate beginning. Yeah, right? sure. But why does that ultimate beginning have to be God versus why can't it just be like, the singularity that causes the beginning to be there forever? Like, why is it the intelligent versus the unintelligent? Like, like, why does it have to be an intellectual God versus, like, a, just uh, have incidental happening? Okay. So here's the thing. What we're trying to do right now is to show them there is a creator. Okay? Those other questions, like as long as you can say, look, there has to be a creator, right? That's self-evidently true. If not, you need to bring the burden of proof. That's what this section's covering. With the rest of the questions, we'll get to those as we move forward. Okay? At this section, we're just trying to say there is a creator, yes or no. That's all we're asking. Right now, in terms of singularity, who is the creator? What's the nature of the creator? Why is it the God of Islam and not the God of Christianity? Yada, yada, yada. We'll get into that. But right now, we're trying to say someone that has a claim that there's no God, there's no creator, we're trying to say that claim is incorrect in the sense that it's self-evidently true that there's a creator, right? In the terms of being khalik, that there's prior causal processes, right? That's self-evidently true. So if you don't think there's a creator, you need to bring the proof. I don't have to prove that. Does that make sense? That's the purpose of the section. And in fact, the purpose of the section in the end is really to empower you guys. Right, because a lot of times when you start bumping heads with atheists, you start feeling a bit shy, right? Like, oh my God, like you know, oh my God, Dawkins and you know, who knows who else, and all these professors and you know, hardcore atheists and like my evolutionary biology professor, blah 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 blah, because they have PhDs, so they're so intelligent. And oh my God, how am I going to deal with them? In the end, it's like my friend Imran says. He says it's like a dog with no teeth, right? Really loud bark, especially the the militant atheists. Really loud bark, but at the end, they're really just a dog with no teeth. Yeah. Oh, same. So he has videos and stuff on, oh, okay. on YouTube. If you're interested. <laughs> All right. Yeah. He's got uh, he's got some stuff on YouTube. You can check it out. Yeah. Yeah. So some like attributes of Allah are self-evident, and some that are being taught. Yeah. How do we know which ones we can? When someone says the opposite, right, which is problematic. Yeah. How do we know when we talk about the self-evidence? So are are you talking about from the perspective of an atheist? So from the perspective of an atheist, the only thing that we're seeing is self-evident is the fact that Allah is Khalid. We're not talking about any other attributes, right? Now I'm not saying right or wrong, but I'm saying from the perspective of who has to bring the proof, when it comes to the, the fact that he's Khalid, the fact that he's a creator, that's all we're talking about. Because what's self-evident is that they're prior creative processes, right? That's all we're saying, right? We're not saying, you know, we're not getting into like, oh, is he a Rahman? Is he, you know, is he uh, just? Is he that's this? Not, is it right? That's not the argument of that's not, that's not what we're talking That's not the argument of atheism, exactly. We're going to right to the core. If you say there's no creator, we're saying there is a creator and that it's self-evidently true. And this is why. Halas. Right? In terms of who created the creator, well, we just went through that. Okay. As opposed to other attributes of Allah, again, that's something else. And also, the other thing to think about um, is in the section when we cover the argument from the Quran is like sources of knowledge. Right? This is uh, Mubarak's favorite area, right? Like epistemology. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about sources of knowledge as well when we get to the Qur'an, right? Like what is a valid source of knowledge? Okay, so science is, in a sense, a valid source of knowledge, okay? Is that the only source of knowledge? Okay, we say no, but most people would say yes. Or a lot of people, a lot of atheists would say yes. Until you can prove it to me scientifically, I won't believe it. So one of the areas we want to get into is to show that there are other epistemic tools, other sources of knowledge that we can use, that you use on a daily basis, that's not scientific. Right, that's to do with other things, but... 
We'll get there when we get there, Sean. As I tell my kid no longer road trips. All right. All right, any questions before we conclude? Because that's it. That's that's the end of today. All right. Um, going back to the beginning, uh, we were okay. talking about Hellfire, non-believers or people that didn't receive the message yep. between prophets and yep. even people in today's world. Yeah. What do you define as the message being received? Like, is it, like if you look at social media and mainstream media, sure. no Muslims exist, but what they know Islam as? Sure, and so that's the other area that is spoken about. In fact, Imam al-Ghazali, Mubarak, <laughs> speaks about this idea as well, and he actually um, he speaks about basically this idea of you know people receiving messages, right? And what exactly is that? But what I would say is that from our perspective, like you don't know whether they received it or not. Even if you told them everything about Islam, right? You told them everything from Tawheed all the way down to like the five prayers, and they know everything. You still are not in a position to say, David, you know enough, accept Islam or go to hell. Right? Mm -hmm. you, you just It's not something you can say. Right? You don't know how much of the information Yeah, you don't know how much information they processed. You don't know, like, so there's a lot of unknowns for you to make that claim, right? You can say you're under the threat of the punishment of Allah, right? I'm not saying don't use, like, fear in terms of your da'wah, right? Because Allah uses it in the Quran. But I'm saying you don't use it in this objective way, like, I know, David, you're going to hell, or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just speaking about the hellfire thing, yeah. isn't the kind of argument to that saying that like it's in your chitra to kind of understand and use Of course. So then, how would you, you know, advocate somebody by, by telling them like, you know, that, you know, you're not predisposed to going to hell? Yeah, of course. I that, that I mean, you tell that people to, to to people all the time. Like your dispos your natural disposition is one of goodness. You're created on a state of goodness because we believe you're created in the fitna. Right? That's why your assumption about people is that they're good. That's a general assumption. And unfortunately, we don't make that popular right, in our discourse. So we don't, like, when I talk to people, I'm saying, you know, my assumption about you, Muslim, non-Muslim, whatever it is, is that you're good at your, at your core. You know? Because you're upon the fitra. Until, unless otherwise. Right? But my, your assumption about someone is that they're innocent, they're debt-free, and that they're pure. And in fact, that's where... Um, like when you look at like Islamic law, so the concept of like innocent until proven guilty, for instance, that's actually a, a concept that's taken from the fitra, right? Because there's a rule in Sharia um, or Qawad al fiqiyah right? Al yaqeen la yuzulu bishak. That certainty is not removed by doubt, okay? When you're certain about something, you can't have something doubtful to remove it, right? So the, the example, right? <laughs> so the example that's sometimes given is wudu, right? So in other words, you pray, let's say, Salat al Dhuhr, okay? And you get to Salat al Asr and you can't remember whether you made wudu or not. Okay, based on this rule, not all the madhabs, but based on this rule, you would say, what am I sure about? I'm sure that I prayed dhuhr, and in order to pray dhuhr, I had to make wudu, so I'm sure that I had wudu. I'm doubtful whether I broke it. So you go with what you're certain with, that I have wudu. And that helps you with like waswisas from shaitan, right? Because that can lead you like to go nuts. Yeah? Yes. Do I have wudu? And then you finish wudu, like, did I completely make wudu? Or like, you know, it's just, right? So now how does it extend to like, let's say, um, the idea of innocent until proven guilty, okay? Because certainty is not ruled by doubt. What are you certain of? That the person is born upon the fitra. That's certain. Whether they left the fitra is the area of doubt, right? So you always go with certainty not being ruled by doubt. You're certain that they're upon the fitra unless you have evidence to the contrary. So they're innocent because that's part of the fitra until proven guilty, right? They're debt-free until they've proven that they have debt, etc. Make sense? So it has a lot of applications in things people establish that they don't realize is coming from the fitra. Like there's this book called uh, Debt, The History of the First 5,000 Years. The entire time I'm reading the book, I'm thinking this guy has 
if he knew about the fitra, he wouldn't have written this book. Because that was his main problem. Like, why do we feel indebted? This was his main question. Right? So when you give someone a loan and you expect it to be paid back, or like, they, they, you know, you, you feel indebted. Okay, well, why? That's his main question. And that, that idea of being in debt is actually a fitri concept. Right? Which we'll get into when we speak about the idea of shukr, and ibadah, and all these things, and luqman, uh, salam. We have a section on that too. Inshallah. All right. Yes? So the thing is, I personally think that um, being a part of the MSA puts you in a very special position, okay? Meaning that you have the ability more than even people that are outside of college to express Islam to people, right? Now, whether that's done through tabling, I think is an excellent, excellent way because it's not confrontational, right? Which you guys are very strong in, yeah? That's it. <laughs> anyway. Um, that, that has to do with that has to do with inviting people to like talks and things like that, right? So like the talk that we have coming up, I'd say ask your normal friends to come, right? And it's not very abrasive. You have um, the exhibition that we did last semester. Again, not very abrasive because a lot of what happens in our environment, we feel like we don't want to hurt people's feelings, right? Um, and that's especially true here for some odd reason. Not for some odd reason. I don't know why, but we feel that way, especially you know, in a college like this where everyone is like really happy to see you and everything. And so you don't want to hurt their feelings by telling them, you know what? Um, I don't believe that to be true. And here's why you should believe it not to be true either, right? Because you might be like, oh, I might offend him or whatever. Um, but at the end of the day, there's you know, so you have these ability, you have these these opportunities to do it, especially in the context of the MSA. So I would kind of start in that area. And there's other means as well. Like, da'wah is not just talking to people. You know, you have da'wah via, like, writing. You have da'wah via, you know, just, like, obviously your character and things like that as well. But you should always look at your character as a means to open the dialogue, right? So I always say, like, and actually I took this from Sheikh Kamal Maki, is that always make sure you tell people that what your, where your character is coming from. Right? Like this good deed is brought to you by Islam, right? That's what you're not gonna say it like that. But you wanna kind of stress something related to it, right? You help someone out and they're like, Oh man, I really appreciate that. Like, yeah man, that's basically how we you know, our Prophet Muhammad, that's what he was taught that's what how he taught us to do this, right? And I do this because of my love for him, right? And it might open the door for you, you know, and then Sheikh Kamal has a whole bunch of other techniques like in the workplace and like he has that one where he talks about like how to be on the phone in a way that's fake. You guys know that one? So he goes, like, if you're in the workplace, you can't, you can't, like, legally talk about religion. So he goes, just turn your phone on airplane mode and just pretend like you're talking to someone. And people love eavesdropping, yeah? So he's like, you know, yeah, so I was talking to this guy, and I was telling him about Allah and Tawheed, and he asked me about the existence of God and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, hey, man, what are you doing? He's like, excuse me, you're interrupting my conversation, right? But you're giving the da'wah. And, and, and to be honest... And, Anyway, actually, it actually, it actually did. Listen, it did work because there was these two sisters. He was telling us that there's two sisters in the bathroom. They're having a conversation about some Dao activity that they were doing, and the lady that was like next to them, they kind of, she gave those two sisters like a really bad stare and like walked out really mad, right? And then a few minutes later, like this 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 lady walks out of the stall and she's like, oh my god, 
uh, you were just talking about this, and could you tell me more about it? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and I think she actually became Muslim. You know, so so you never know who's listening. People, people, people love people love to eavesdrop. So what I listen, what I would say, but the main thing is the main thing. This is kind of the take-home point. Listen up, guys. Really, the main thing, and, I, and we'll stop. We'll stop here. The main thing is to be confident in your Islam, because if you're confident, this is the truth and this is the absolute truth then there should be nothing stopping you. Like, you think about the Prophet what is the opposition he faced? Like, you think he was like, oh, um, you know, I don't want to offend you, but this, I mean, nah. If that was the case, many of us wouldn't be Muslim today. Like, I wouldn't be Muslim today, right? Islam would have never reached the subcontinent if it was for that, if he had that type of attitude. All of us are here and we're Muslim and we thank Allah for that because of the fact that the Prophet was not in this way like, oh, too shy to offend people. But he understood that if I don't tell them, that their lives are going to be in, potential be in the hellfire forever. And that's how you have to look at it. Right? So we'll stop there.